it's a reward, mm -hmm. actually. Uh, the people with whom you were, de you know, declared enemies during the Cold War, uh, you still manage to have a human relationship, which has withstood that period and which has withstood uh, the period in which we find ourselves right now. So those human things, mm -hmm. human connections, uh, prove to be very resilient. Listening to the live drop with Mark Valley. Time for your Mad Minute. I had a chance to chat with Dr. Dmitry Trenin, director of the Carnegie Institute, at his office in Moscow, not far from Pushkin Square at the end of last year. Dr. Trenin is usually evaluating foreign policy and speaking truth to power here in Russia and around the world, but today he was speaking to me about pre-revolutionary Russian history, salient Russian characteristic, the influence of the Huns and Russian organization, and his experience with the Soviet United States military liaison mission, or SOXMIS as it was called, which was an open intelligence gathering agreement between the Allies and Berlin after World War II. Um, this is a short burst of an episode with a lot of information. Begin transmission now. Um, where, where are you from? I'm from Moscow. You're from Moscow, yep. born and bred. What part of town? Well, I was born maybe a couple of miles uh, away from here. Uh, close to the um, foreign ministry building in the Arbat area, which is one of the... Old Arbat uh, or new Arbat? Yeah, it's old Arbat. It's yeah. uh, one of the, I think, most interesting parts of historical Moscow. I, I, I noticed there are a lot of um, like elderly women playing musical instruments on that street. You don't see that that much. Well, the street from. has changed its character tremendously since... Um, uh, since the 1970s, I think. Before that, it was a busy street in the center of a big city. You had uh, streetcars, uh, you had uh, buses, you had uh, whatever. Um, now it's like a few and, uh, it was not. It's, it was not what, what, what it is now. It was just a busy street in a, in, a, in a big city. Today, it's more of a shopping mall for the uh, open sky, you know, open-air shopping mall for tourists. I don't know. I mean, as, a, as someone who was born there, I, I, do not, I do not applaud that very much. I mean, those two streets sort of represent, like, pre, I mean, for me, I, I've, been, I've been in Russia for, Moscow for three days, excuse me, but the new Arbat compared with the old Arbat, it really looks like, um, like pre-revolutionary Russia compared to post-Soviet Russia. I mean, the wide road reminds me of, like, Karl Marx, L.A. and Berlin, well, it was a uh, new Arbat was uh, built in, in the 1960s. Uh, it's to me, it's 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 very Soviet street. Mm -hmm. It's modern in its own way. I think a lot of people liked it when it was first built. You know, it was it looked very very modern in those days and in, in the 1960s. Over time, I think uh, some of it has worn off. This novelty, this uh, modernity, if you like, to me, it's uh, it's an important monument to an important period in in Russian history, which was the Soviet Union. It was Stalin who started building very wide streets in Moscow. For example, uh, the Garden Ring, where I live, it's about thirty minutes walking distance from here. It used to be much much narrower than it is now. It was Stalin in 1935 who signed off on the plan for 
general reconstruction of the city of Moscow, and he built very big thoroughfares cutting through uh, the city center um, in, in a number of places uh, that meant that, and all, including in Arbat, which was not in Stalin's days, of course, was post-Stalin. Uh, it, it cut through historical areas, and it destroyed a lot of old, quaint old buildings that obstructed traffic and all that. A little bit like, you know, um, the freeways, the, the streets, and in, in some of the streets in, uh, well, you mentioned Berlin, but also in Rome. Yeah. Uh, they built, you know, Fori Imperiali, this very wide street that um, uh, that cuts through the the heart of the historical center of Rome. Because I, I think it's one of the things I find is really fascinating is um, the Soviet identity of Russians and how it hasn't been completely discarded like it has, say, in East East Germany or something like that. There hasn't been, um, I mean, nobody's taking down um, statues. I mean, Stalin being the exception to that. But yeah, I, I'm just um, I'm just wondering if you could speak to a little bit on that. Like, what, how was how that viewed, the, the Soviet identity, the remaining Soviet identity? Well, the Soviet Union is... is is another name for Russia. It's an historical name for Russia. You can be uh, a Latvian and you would say that the Soviet Union was not us. It, it actually invaded us. It annexed us and did things to us. Even people in Ukraine are saying that the Soviet Union was some kind of a foreign power that lorded over Ukraine, which in my view is not true. But you cannot be a, a, a sane person in Russia and claim that the Soviet Union was somehow a foreign state. It was us. Right. We cannot say it was the Martians or whoever. Uh, in East Germany and uh, in, in many parts of uh, Eastern Europe, uh, the, the communism was very much associated with the Soviet Union, with Soviet power that imposed that system on those countries. But for the people of Russia... I, uh, that system was not imposed on them. I mean, it was imposed by them, but it was imposed by uh, a bunch of uh, Russian revolutionaries uh, led by Lenin and, and, and others. And uh, it was also shaken off by uh, uh, the Russian people. Unlike in Eastern Europe, it was imposed on them by the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. And it was when the Soviet Union said, you're basically on your own, that they uh, emerged from it. They never were, inst they, 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 they never actively, most of them, they never actively embraced the communist idea and they did not actually rebel against it. I mean, some of them, of course, did, but uh, the, their liberation from communism was a function of the changes in the Soviet Union. Gorbachev's perestroika. So you're saying that the Soviet Union had a more maybe authentic and deeper communist experience, both in its, both in its implementation and, and shrugging it off. Yeah, it's, uh, it was, as I said, it was a part of Russia's history. It was uh, an aberration in so many ways. But it was, uh, it, it, it was also the time of incredible mobilization of Russia's resources that allowed Russia, for a period of time, uh, to climb to the top of the world in so many areas, not just military, but so many mm -hmm. other areas. Uh, and uh, some, the heights that 
Russia achieved in its Soviet period um, had not been achieved before, and they will not be achieved, I'm sure, um, in the future. See, I went to the Moscow City Day. Well, I couldn't miss it. I'm actually staying in Tverskaya, right down the street. Some of the exhibits I thought were fascinating because they really, um, it almost, I mean, from an American perspective, it almost looked a little bit like state propaganda. Mm-hmm. Um, such as? Such as the, there were demonstrations for the, um, the, the space, it was, it was a, I guess it was, a, it was a celebration of the city of Moscow. Mm-hmm. Well, there were demonstrations for the, um, you know, the space program. There's a large, um, yeah, there's just a large Sputnik for kids to be able to climb over and to see yeah. these these kind mm-hmm. of past accomplishments. There was it seemed to really focus on like technology, military, and athletics, right. at least from down from the street, which seemed to be sort of the big three um, exports of the Soviet the Soviet era. Mm-hmm. And I was just wondering, is that, I don't, I don't know. I, I thought from, from an American's perspective, I thought, I don't know if we would, we would really have that. Well, I don't think you, you can compare that to what hap- what, 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 what's done in the United States when you guys celebrate, you know, the 4th of July and your other important uh, holidays. Uh, in Russia, uh, pre-Soviet, Soviet, and post-Soviet, the state takes the lead. Uh, it's not um, it's not a country where society is on top. Not now. You may say not just yet. But um, it, it's a system in which the organizing principle of society or the organizing element of society is um, is the state. So the celebrations that you're referring to were all designed and paid for by the city government of Moscow. And, of course, they will be celebrating the achievements. They will not be talking about the underside of the Soviet period, which was tremendous, which was, uh, you know, in, in, in so many it, it was totally unprecedented in Russian history. The amount of uh, tragedies uh, committed by the state against uh, their own people. Mm-hmm. The millions and millions and millions of people who died at the hands of the state. So eventually we'll get to Berlin. But I did want to say something else that I'd heard is that there is one thing that Russians and Americans have in common. I think it's it's a predilection toward um, authoritarianism in a certain way. I mean, I, th- I think Americans really have an admiration for... Um, you know, for example, someone like President Trump who kind of steps in and says, I can do this, I can do this, and this is going to be easy, and follow me, and don't worry about it. So he's a strong he's a strong figure to a lot of Americans. Um, do you find that with the Russians, is it, is it a different type of authoritarianism, or is it based on admiration or fear, or is it maybe a historical thing? Because I heard at one point that Soviet peasants, I think up until like the 1860s, could actually be Bought and sold as laborers. No, no, Is no. This true? Uh, no, no. The eighteen uh, sixties. That's that would be true. The eighteen sixties. Eighteen sixties. Yeah. Uh, until the nineteen sixties, uh, they could not travel freely around the country. Or then, uh, I think they were released from that new bondage uh, in uh, in the um, in the late nineteen fifties by Khrushchev. Oh, is that late? So they, they, they had to stay on the land. They could not leave their villages to go 
somewhere. Uh, they had to work then. That, that lasted from the 1930s until the mid-1950s, about 25 years. But until um, 1861, uh, a large part of Russian peasants were serfs on the land owned by landowners, uh, the gentry. Uh, that's true, and that, that also explains a lot in today's Russian psyche. Um, and in that sense, I think Americans and Russians are, have, have a very different um, historical um, background. I think that uh, authoritarianism, well, A, it exists everywhere in different ways and forms. Uh, in, uh, in a lot of companies where Trump comes from, uh, you have an authoritarian system inside. Mm-hmm. You have the boss who is, who is the boss and who can do many things to you as an American worker that uh, his peer in Europe would not be able to do it to his workers. In that sense, America is much more authoritarian than European countries in terms of uh, labor conditions. Mm-hmm. And uh, in, in, in Russia, the, 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 the problem, I think, with the Russian people is that well, problem or not, I mean, the, the, the salient characteristic of the Russian people um, so far has been that uh, they had to come together uh, historically um, because, it, because of the harshness of the climate, because of the uh, nature Wait. of the landscape. It's flat. There. Winter is coming, like in the Game of Thrones. Exactly, right? exactly. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's, it's a flat land, more or less. It's plains. Uh, invaders from all sides can easily access any part of, 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 of the country. So you have, you have to have credible defense, which meant that you had to be ready to stand uh, under the flag of whoever the king or the, the prince was. Um, and um, uh, they, for a quarter of a millennium, when Russian the Russian state... The, the current Russian state was born um, from the 13th to the 15th centuries. Russia was part of uh, the Mongol Empire. And uh, the founding uh, techniques of statecraft were borrowed from, from, the Ma- from, uh, Mongo- from his successors, actually. Right. And, uh, that, uh, and that's, that, that's interesting because... Oh, that's that, fascinating. Because that that part of, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, the Mongols owned uh, what what is uh, the core lands of Russia today, but uh, the lands of uh, Ukraine, what's now Ukraine, what's now Belarus, that uh, used to form uh, the ancient Russian state, um, were taken over by the Lithuanians and the Poles, and they had a different. Um, historical background, uh, city rights, and uh, and stuff like that in some places. Oh, so Russia is much more eastern than I I thought. What is it about the Mongols that's reflected in you know whatever predilection for government or organization here in Russia? Well, the um, the the Russian. Grand Dukes, the Moscow Grand Dukes. Definitely decisiveness. They, I think. They, sure, they became yeah. Dukes. They became czars. Uh, 
uh, were absolute rulers. They were not constrained by any system of checks and balances. There were such systems in, in European countries, even in absolute monarchies, or near-absolute monarchies. In, uh, in, in Russia, the power of uh, the Tsar was, was essentially boundless. And uh, it also, there was also this harmony or kind of a union, almost virtually unbreakable union between the temporal and the spiritual. The, the Grand Duke and the Metropolitan, the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, or later on the Tsar and the Patriarch, almost always in Russian history, were together. And the Tsar was the higher authority. I've heard you mention some of your... You know, some of your articles, yeah, that Russia was never really did get the the checks and balances. They're not used to having a government actually being check a separate police force or a separate judiciary or something like that. But going back to the, I I, I just finished doing a television show about the Romanovs down in in Prague. By the way, right. are there any um, heirs left? Or is that just a? Well, there's some heirs left, but uh, there's uh, there's a dispute. Uh, a between or among those heirs because they're couple of lines that are competing uh, and um, and their status here in Russia is 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 not defined really mm-hmm. uh, to the Russian state they are private citizens in principle, but of course they are accorded uh, um, special honors because uh, the government of the day uh, believes in the continuity of Russian history. Soviet as well as pre-Soviet, or post-Soviet, Soviet, and pre-Soviet. It's the same country. There are big breaks in continuity, but it's not separate countries. It's mm-hmm. one and the same country, and you have to... Um, you, you, you do not reject the way the Germans would an entire history, Fascist an entire pe- or period of history. So that the you know fascists, uh, Nazis, were somehow you know ejected from from German history or or described as a as a as a black blot on that history. In this country, you have to accept everything that happened mm-hmm. under the Russian flag, under the Russian state emblem, as part of your heritage. Good things, bad things, uh, tragedies crimes as well as achievements and the victories and and everything you have to form russians can carry it all i can see it in their faces well they have they have (laughs) well they have to carry it i mean those who think well it might it it might be like a a western concept of you know like a religious like that religious experience that became so um popular in the 1900s where you could kind of give up everything from the past and you could be um completely born again um it doesn't seem to be a Russian idea. No, born again. I think the communists thought that uh, their their system, uh, the state that they founded back in 1917, is is a born again Soviet Russia mm-hmm. that uh, looked at Tsarist Russia, its predecessor, as uh, essentially an adversary that they vanquished. But uh, that never worked, and uh, people have learned that lesson. So when uh, the Soviet Union became history, Soviet symbols, some of them were, were, de- were destroyed. Like which ones? Well, for example, there was a statue of Felix Dzerzhinsky, the 
a Pole who was the head guy. of the uh, Cheka, the the the, uh, the secret police, if you like, of the Oforana, the, the the secret police uh, in in the Soviet Union. Uh, many of the statues of Lenin were taken away. There are a few remaining, but but very few. KGB was split up. Uh, FSB. Yes, it was. Uh, the name was removed. Well, you know, the name changed all the time in, mm-hmm. uh, in, in during the Soviet Union. I think it had uh, four four names uh, that the system that Zerzhinsky founded for Lenin uh, bore in its in its history in the Soviet Union. So people um, who for decades have been talking about 1917, the Bolshevik Revolution year, as the foundation year of uh, of this country, even calendars in in the Soviet Union said, "Well, this is now whatever 1975, but this is the fifty um, eighth uh, year of the October Revolution." So they somehow tried to instill the the revolutionary calendar into the into into the normal. It never yeah. worked. I mean, I could see that in, in Cuba. I was in Cuba. Not long ago, and um, yeah, they had a concert and stuff, and it was Viva la Revolution. Mm-hmm. They're still celebrating the revolution. You know, the time, you know, that moment where they took power, the moment where right. things changed. Right. I think that might explain why Donald Trump likes to talk about what a great campaign that he had. Now <laughs> he beat Hillary Clinton. Anyway, that's a different subject. <laughs> he wants to have a special day. Um, yeah, let's get into Berlin a little bit. Um, you you became an officer in, in the Soviet Army, and um, uh, could you explain why as well, and maybe what your specialty was? Why I became an officer? Well, I I, uh, I, I think I told you that I was born in the physically in the shadow of the um, of the Soviet Foreign Ministry's building, one of the Stalin skyscrapers in Smolensk Square. In, in the old Arbat area. And there are quite a few embassies around. So when I, my, my, own, my own school was just right behind the fence of the um, Italian embassy. Mm-hmm. And uh, international affairs was always, well, not always, but from, from a very early age, my passion. And I wanted to enter the institute where they train diplomats in, in Moscow. But um, Who were your heroes at the time? You said you, were, you were had a passion for diplomacy. Well, I think my heroes were um, Russian diplomats, such as uh, Prince Gorchakov in the 19th century. Um, I was very interested also in Russian history, pre-revolutionary history. Um, so some of the Russian monarchs, like Peter the Great, uh, were among my heroes. Uh, Catherine the Great, um, her generals. So that was, you know, my hall of fame, if you like. Mm-hmm. But I was told, uh, I was advised actually, uh, that uh, without uh a recommendation from the party authorities or the Komsomol, which was a youth link, a youth uh, wing of the party, uh, I stood basically no chance of being admitted 
as a fresh uh, school leaver. And uh, it just happened that um, six months before graduation, uh, there appeared a colonel in my school uh, from the uh, Institute of uh, Foreign Languages that was run by the Ministry of Defense. And he said, um, he was not talking to me, he was talking to the class. He said that with the Soviet army becoming more and more uh, responsible for things uh, beyond uh, the Soviet Union's borders, uh, they had a need of people who would speak languages, understand uh, other countries, and, and work for the Soviet Union uh, abroad. And uh, I, was, I was attracted to the idea because um, he managed to convince me that unlike in the uh, institute run by the foreign ministry, uh, they were much more meritocratic than military. So they mm. would accept people who would, uh, you know, show uh, good results at the entrance exam. They like to work. Uh, rather than, you know, look at the recommendation by the party authorities. So, so, that's, you, that's how so you were essentially, a, a, um, you worked your way into being a foreign, foreign area officer. Yeah, yeah, this was the equivalent of that. Mm -hmm. And you went to, um, you worked in... Potsdam. Uh, before that, my, my first uh, foreign trip was to Iraq in 1975-76. I was uh, with the Soviet Military Assistance Group. Uh, I was based at Habania, which is a, a former British uh, Royal Air Force base uh, between Fallujah and Ramadi. Mm -hmm. um, something like 70 kilometers from Baghdad. Spent a whole year out there. And after that, I spent uh, five uh, years in uh, Germany, in East Germany, uh, frequently visiting West Berlin. I was part of the um, Soviet military headquarters that was called uh, the External Relations Branch. So it was like, you know, a quasi-foreign ministry type of organization that dealt with uh, Allied military liaison missions. Uh, British, French, and American. Oh, okay. I think I know who your American counterpart might have been. Do you remember who it was, or can you say his name? Well, there, 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 were, there were several. There was Among the chiefs of mission on my watch were uh, Colonel Don Stobel, um, General Greenwald, someone who did not, I don't think he was chief of mission in those days, but he showed up later on as the U.S. defense attache in Moscow, Gregory Govan, who also made it to was it was it was uh, was promoted to general later on, and many other people. Uh, I sometimes see them, and uh, sometimes I stay in. Uh, sometimes I exchange uh, messages with some of them. It's uh, it's a reward mm -hmm. actually. Uh, the people with whom you were. The, you know, declared enemies during the Cold War, uh, you still managed to have a human relationship which has withstood that period and which has withstood uh, the period in which we find ourselves right now. So those human things, mm -hmm. human connections, uh, proved to be very resilient. It must have been an interesting experience to be able to interact with these people on a daily basis while... Berlin was actually the center of the Cold War. It was, yeah, it, was. it was the ring. Yeah, geographically speaking, it was the center. Mm -hmm. What was the overall Soviet plan with 
Berlin if it had if there had been a war? Well, um, Berlin had to be secured by by the Soviet military. There were several divisions uh, deployed uh, in the vicinity of Berlin. Uh, it would have been taken over uh, fairly mm-hmm. quickly. But uh, the Soviet strategic planning did not include in the at least in the years I was there and I would say even even before that it did not include any uh, serious planning for an offensive uh, campaign mm-hmm. against the West were they aware of the units like detachment a like special forces units was there a spetsnaz or a GRU equivalent well uh, not Look, uh, I, the Soviet system was very compartmentalized, so uh, they acted on a need-to-know basis. Right. And I was not in the loop. Mm-hmm. So I was not aware. Actually, uh, many of us, um, I'm talking about uh, young officers of the Soviet army, uh, we learned a lot of things about our, our own army from... Uh, um, uh, the brochures that uh, the Pentagon was issuing the Soviet military power in the 1980s. There was an annual report by the Pentagon, or when I later served on staff of the Soviet delegation to nuclear and nuclear and space talks in Geneva, I learned a lot about the Soviet as well as U.S. Um, nuclear arsenal. But uh, as, uh, you know, as uh, company officers, uh, even staff officers in the Soviet Union, uh, you were only aware of the things that you were actually dealing with. Mm-hmm. Jeff, I, just, I could leave you with, um, with this. Um, you know, I know you have to go somewhere. We could be done. But it, maybe you, do you have an anecdote. You're working in a mission. It was an international community. There were French, British, Americans. Can you remember maybe one anecdote where Americans and Russians um, might have worked together? Well, they were not there to cooperate um, on, um, on any particular, particular project, but the very fact that uh, the missions were allowed to continue uh, through the Cold War was a very important act of um, confidence building in which both sides the Soviet Union, the United States, and its allies cooperated. Uh, The missions were originally established to maintain contacts between the four governors of occupied Germany, each representing one of the victorious powers. With the advent of the Cold War, with the division of Germany, uh, those contacts uh, lost their uh, relevance. Germany was run in a very different way from 1949, let's say. Um, But the missions were allowed to stay. They were allowed to stay as legitimate intelligence-gathering outfits that would patrol the other half of Germany and report back to the capitals what what they saw. And that thing... Uh, when th- that allowed the decision makers in Washington, Moscow, London, Paris to know exactly what was happening on the central front of the Cold War uh, from their own military officers, that helped to keep the Cold War cold, in my view. No significant movement, mm. no significant deployment by the other party 
would go unnoticed. Oh, we used to see them. We used to see sure. the, the brown sure. ladders. Right. Um, do you think we could benefit from a similar organization, or is there one already? Um, no, I don't think you can uh, actually replicate what, uh, what there was during the Cold War. But we certainly need uh, to have uh, regular uh, contacts. We need to have uh, people who would um, have confidence in each other on both sides, even though those sides now have a lot of differences and are in the, like the United States and Russia are in a state of new confrontation. So we need uh, the defense chiefs to talk. We need Russia and NATO to stay in touch. We need the uh, commanders uh, um, in Europe and elsewhere uh, to have direct lines to each other so that uh, uh, if there is an incident, God forbid, uh, this incident does not degenerate into something much worse. So, absolutely. And, uh, and let me also add that uh, uh, one thing that I learned during the Cold War, and I think that this, this, we, we, we absolutely need to keep that, is that the other side is also human. We may have different political systems, we may have different policies, we may have different ideas about things, but above all that, we're human beings, and we share a lot um, of humanity uh, between us, and that, I think, needs to be preserved especially in, in the hard times through which we're going now. Yeah, I would agree. Спасибо. Спасибо вам.